This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 6, Episode 17 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. And today we're joined by our very special guest, Larry Nemechek, to begin our series on Michael Piller. How's it going, Larry? Uh, it's going good. It's going good. We're all recovered from uh, the Vegas Con this summer and... Um... I'm glad you glad to hear you were you were. Doing, I can't believe you waited this long to jump in on it's, Michael Pillar. It's but, insane. Uh, I, thank you I, for I having don't know me. How don't know how that happened, you know, but it was one of those things where like we got to the end now and we were like, um, we better we better do this before before we run out of episodes. So um, yeah, today we're, I mean we're we're starting a new series uh, where we're going to be looking at his. Uh, TV shows that he created, or the pilots for his his TV shows that he created, in particular. And today we're going to be looking at his Star Trek stuff in general. And for those people who don't know, I don't know how you listen to the show and not know who Michael Pillar is. But <laughs> Michael Pillar is uh, the creator of or co-creator of Deep Space Nine and Voyager. He ran Next Generation for seasons three through. Five, essentially, kind of, right? Before moving off to do Deep Space Nine. I mean, I know he was around. He, but... he had his hand in, and he came back at the end heavy-handed. Not heavy-handedly. He, you know, when it wrapped up, he made himself okay. known. But right. Yeah. Hands-on hands he... showrunner from third season on. And then and he, he was... kind of handed off to Jerry the last couple and of years. And he was pretty much hands-on showrunner of Deep Space Nine for, like, seasons one through two one and, and two. a half. Yeah. Yeah, one and two. Yeah. yeah. And and then also Voyager along with Jerry Taylor for what, like two years? First two years, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then he came back to write Star Trek Insurrection. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, uh let's let's start at the very beginning. Season three, or maybe just before season three. Now Maurice Hurley was leaving and we've talked all about Maurice Hurley in, in recent uh weeks. And he was leaving season after the end of season two of Next Generation, and there obviously needed to be a replacement. But Michael Pillar wasn't originally that replacement, right? Right. They uh, Michael Pillar was actually doing a kids show that was that was spacey called Hard Time on Planet Earth, and he'd had a writer. I was just kind of refreshing this. He had a writer come into him to pitch, and he was checking out. And I, now I need to see who it was because it's somebody who had sold a story on Next Gen. And he basically did a courtesy call over to the Next Gen office and talked to Maury that he he'd also, you know, it's a small town. <laughs> they kind of at least knew each other a little bit, and uh, he just called to check up on this writer. And Maury said, "Hey, if you really care about it, I'm out of here at the end of the year. You should you should <laughs> you should see about you know coming over." And he went, "Oh." So by the time he kind of got it together, they had already hired um, a guy named Michael Wagner to to um, take take Hurley's place as the showrunner. And even then, they he and Michael Wagner reached out to each other, and he said, "Why don't you write a script for Next Gen?" Which was turned out to be Evolution with the Nanites. Yeah. And 
and they co-wrote it because he did a polish on it and by the time that process went along and this is all like summer right this is like they come back to start shooting in July and this is all happening in April and May whatever well by the time they were kind of partway through that script process Michael Wagner had decided that it was not for him and and so Rick and Gene were kind of like desperate you know we need we need we need a showrunner head writer and uh not thinking anybody there I guess apparently at the time was who it should be handed off to so they basically asked, you know, he happened to be the right guy at the right time who'd done a decent job or more than decent job on evolution. And it was basically that script and that story that got him the job. They say, hey, look, he can, he know, he gets Star Trek. And, um, and, and he had been a sci-fi fan. It's, we should say real quickly, he tells a famous story that he wanted to be a writer. He famously went to North Carolina, um, and, uh, the powder blue one, um, and uh, he was from New York originally. His mom and dad, his mom was a musician. His dad was a writer. His mom, Ruth Roberts, wrote the Mets song, Meet the Mets. Mets. And, you know, was a, he was a base, big baseball fan. Yeah. And um, yeah, M- Michael in baseball. Um, and he, uh, he had gone to college and had a writer, teacher, professor, who basically said, kind of like the paper chase, said, it's my job, there are enough bad writers out there, it's my job to weed you out before you waste your time in anybody else's. And basically kind of let Michael know, student Michael, college student Michael know that uh, he was one of those people that didn't have what it took and to get out. And it bothered him and he, he started doing all kinds of sideball things and went back to New York and he tells a story about, the, he saw a chorus line the first or second week and when the one girl does the song about... Um, it's, hey, wait a minute, I'm good enough. It's not my fault. You know, get a better class, get a better teacher. And he went, there's other idiots out there that, you know. So he went in and got to class and, and started working on it. But in the meantime, he had been like a junior network suit and he had been a censor and then started writing and had credits on a lot of the 80s drama shows and um, was showrunner on that uh, hard time on planet Earth and then and then jumped into Trek and wound up being the guy that I say, there's probably four or five people you might say this of, but he was the guy that saved, one of the people that saved Star Trek because, you know, Next Gen was kind of, it wasn't, it was it was wobbly. The production side was doing okay, but the writing side was still wobbly. It got off to a bad start. Now we're filling in all the blanks here with the Leonard Majelis mess the beginning and then all the Maury Hurley turnover or turmoil the second year even. And there was still plenty of turmoil even in third season. But it was Michael that came in and, and put something on the rails and, and got it going with and without his old friends like Ira Bear and, and people coming in to help. But that's, that's, so that, that catches us up to what the situation was. They were so far behind starting third season of Next Gen. Those, you know, all the the episodes? <laughs> the Hunter, the High Ground, the Defector, the, you know, you go down the line. Um, that, was, that was all his just like slap a name on it and get it out of here. And and then we all kind of famously know that it it sends the father in yesterday's enterprise and and uh, yeah, a few before that showed some glimmers but then they hit that strong that strong sweet and then ended up with best of both worlds and then the show took off and blam and then and then Michael was you know Mr Star Trek God for the next you know five or six years until he I don't say burned out a little bit but um, wanted to get back to some of his screenwriting you know he had enough money in the bank. He could go back to some of his screenwriting things, and then, and as you said, your series is going to wind up hitting Dead Zone. And he he had some screenplays that he was working on. His development deal with Paramount also included. Um, there was one he had a spy thriller 
a modern day spy thriller that he was I can't the name escapes me. So, you know, he was a he was a he liked his, you know, sci-fi, but Michael was not stuck in sci-fi world. He was a pretty competent um, pretty guy and not the most most, most agrarious backslapping guy either as he would say. He liked to come in early in the day, get his work done and then go home and leave and have dinner with the family and the kids and Sandra and and that's the way he organized his day. He and Jerry were both that way. Whereas a lot of the boy, the young boys, <laughs> the Ron and Brandon and and uh, Renee and and Noreen, all those got you know they were the come in late in the morning and not I don't they had good work habits. But he was the get there at five six seven in the morning guy and and get it done early in the day kind of thing. So anyway, there's a, there's a little personality for you about Michael. He was a really interesting guy. No, loved, that's, that's loved cool. his Dodgers. <laughs> Saw saw great seats a few times. I'm not a huge baseball fan, but he would loan his tickets out to people, the assistants and the other writers and everybody, at times. And um, the two times my dad came out to visit from Oklahoma, uh, especially the first time, neither one of us are big baseball people, but we got Michael gave us a couple of tickets for his seats right behind home plate, and I've got pictures of my dad and I of all things watching a Dodgers baseball game together. But it it means a lot now, so. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's so crazy. I mean, I, I'm a I'm a huge yeah. baseball fan. Like when I <laughs> when I met Ira Stephen Bear, I had him sign a, a baseball, you know, that kind of thing. But um, you know, I you you hear that story about how like he took Ira Stephen Bear to a baseball game to convince him to come back to do Deep Space Nine and everything. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, like I've just had this image in my head of like these industry professionals, like. They're always at the Dodgers game, and anytime there's a Dodgers game on TV, which is rather frequently here, you know, I'm always like looking in the background for like <laughs> filmmakers and stuff. He he I'm collected sorry. baseball cards too. He had a toward the end of the, I think when he was going off his development deal, or when he went away from Trek and over across the street to his own office to do work on development. He had a he had like a two or three month show at uh, the L.A. County Natural History Museum with a little. Oh. I, I was going through. I found a new box of stuff. I should get scanned, but I found the invitation to uh, the opening party for his baseball card show, which is That's so cool. Oh, wow! Around '97 or something. He was so proud of that. Yeah. He's, he's like he's like a sports nerd, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. But so 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 hopefully that as we as we go forward that sets a tone a little bit about what kind of a guy he was and. Uh, you know. Yeah, you'd always see him. He he every picture. He's always got a baseball cap on. I yeah. can relate to that. Um. <laughs> well, you know why? Because he was balding, and uh, I mean, he he talks about the idea for insurrection coming from you know putting yet more Rogaine on his on his head <laughs> and thinking Fountain of Youth and all that. So uh, yeah. Well, that's cool. Wherever you take inspiration from, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is kind of crazy, like thinking about it in today's world of like celebrity showrunners and and the internet being what it is. I can only imagine if they were like. Oh yeah. Well, the guy who's taking over the writing staff for Star Trek is the the showrunner of uh, Hard Times on Planet Earth. I mean, I can just imagine the pitchforks. But back then, I guess no one really cared. Right? Well, I mean, he had sold. He had sold. St- I I need to see what he'd done. But he had several one hour solid credits. I mean, he yeah. had he had a solid you know track record in drama. Well, yeah, he was doing what like Cagney and Lacey or something. Yeah, like, I, wanna, I mean, Simon I want to say Simon. Simon yeah, there, I was going right? to say Simon. Oh, yeah. Simon and uh, okay. a lot of good sh- relationship buddy shows that you know the early days of relationship fanzine after 
Kirk Spock and you know K slash not not the necessarily homoerotic kid slash but i mean the early fanzine people out of the 80s and 90s what when there was no star trek around some of those buddy shows uh what was the other one hardcastle and mccormick oh um, yeah simon oh, and simon yeah. there were it, yeah. the little hardcore zine world the women of zine fandom which they were 90 percent women uh that's yeah that whole he wrote on several of those shows yeah cagney and Lacey. i want to say same thing that was same kind of world where jerry taylor came from um, yeah. Hers was uh, she did some of those in Quincy. She was a showrunner on, or, a, or a heavy contributor to Quincy at least. But but uh, yeah. So don't let the Disney thing. It, it was it was like the first time he got to showrun. So it's almost like he had solid writing credits, and then he went back a step to be a showrunner on a on a Disney show. But he was showrunner. Now it was like yeah. you know see what I'm saying. And then it's oh, yeah. yeah yeah yeah. So. Okay, one of the other things that you talked about, um, and this is kind of all related or whatever, but, you know, you talked about sort of like the the rocky road in season three and how it wasn't all, you know, um, good times. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, that famous mass exodus of the writing staff and everything, and I know some of them Well, were... it's famous partly now because Ira came out and talked so honestly about it on the Blu-ray yeah. docs, which is which yeah. was a god's. I I knew about that, and but he really spelled and he had they talked about it, but everybody was like, "Don't put this, you know, don't do the nth degree." <laughs> so it was good to see. That's what time going by does, you know. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> Statute of limitations sure. runs out, and people feel a little more, a little more, just like with the first couple of seasons in Shatner's doc now on Next Gen and all that too. Yeah, but yeah. we know these things, you know. And I mean, to me, like that stuff. I know that people are are worried about protecting the brand and everything, but to me, it's like when I hear stories like that, I'm just sort of more in awe of the creative process. I'm more yeah. in awe of what they do. You know? Yeah, it, it it almost elevates it because you're like, well, how do they? You know, you, you, when they turn out something great, it's like easy to believe they turned out something great if everybody's happy and getting along. But then when they turn out something great and you find out, you know, it's like when you find out that your favorite band fought all the time. You're like, how did you guys turn out that album then? Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, there. It's like it's like I, I interviewed the showrunner for uh, the Astronaut Wives Club, which is a great oh, uh, yeah. miniseries this summer, and it's it'll still be available online. Uh, it's ten episodes, and it got better. It it even got better as it went along. But and I I'm a you know I'm an old NASA kid nerd whatever. But um, um, part of the appeal of that is that glossy outward appeal NASA PR look and here's all this stuff. Not that they not it was not the real housewives of Cocoa Beach or anything like that or Houston <laughs> but um, but they you know they did and it was dramatized a little bit but they did pretty much take the stories that was in the book The Astronaut Wives Club that the woman um, Lily uh, gone blank on her name uh, interviewed a lot of the women before they died and uh, the original Mercury 7 wives and on into it but all that to say that I mean, you know, people are human beings, and uh, and it's aside from the fact that it's boring, like you're making dramatic choices. They're human beings, and some days, you know, some days. What's that thing about some days the you get the cat, and some days the cat gets you? What's that phrase? Uh, so, you know, some days things are things are rolling along great, and some days things aren't. They're pretty bumpy, and that's just human existence and human experience, and. There, you know, it's hard to imagine anything else that, especially today, <laughs> pull that plug in five five weeks, much less thirteen. But it's hard to imagine anything where the patience was shown Star Trek 
but they were pioneering syndication and it was Star Trek and the, the cast was doing well and the production looked good, although everything the first couple of years was getting better and you know all the de- departments were doing better and better. The lighting turned over two or three times. And, and it was. It, it, they had those contracts about going seven years and the accountants had already pre-made the budgets where everything that made sense was predicated on going seven years and all that, especially being syndicated. But um, it's hard to imagine them stumbling along for another two or three. You know, there were good shows. Measure of Man's a great show. There were some fun shows the first couple of years. But it just seemed like that evolution curve, like you give them a pass on the first season. Even today, you wouldn't get that pass, depending on what yeah, situation true. you were in. But even into the second season and still having it be, you know, b- bumpy shows, um, they were getting better. You could tell. I mean, the fans were so hungry. That was the thing. We weren't inundated with sci-fi, much less Trek. And we were all just so hungry watching it week to week back in those days that you cut them a lot of slack. And you were just like, any little sign of progress. So, yeah, for him to come in and and um, and, and be able to, to, you know, jump on the bucking Bronco, even if he was sliding around the saddle, at least he didn't let go. Yeah. There's, a, there's an image for you. Um, you know, the ghillie horse or something. The he, he didn't let go, and other people got thrown off. And even as, you know, even Iris said, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm just too beat up by this year. I have to go and had to be taught back. And, you know, like little boy, little boy Ron Moore, who was so thrilled to sell his spec script out of the blue, which was a, like, oh my God, they're sitting there in the office going, look at this, it's a script that's mostly ready. It's good. Get that kid in here and give him another script. Okay, hire that kid, you know? And, and he's there. And then the more experienced writers are all having their, you know, creative issues and whatever. Um, and then, but brick by brick, he starts to assemble a, his own staff. Um, it's just amazing. But that's the year they wind up with Best of Both Worlds, and him not even knowing if he would come back because it'd been a drain on him, you know. And that's where the that's where that. But I, just real quickly, I was finding some old quotes where he was talking about what he did. He his thing from day one was Next Gen and Star Trek was a family, not a family show but that the characters were families, and he thought that um, Picard, even in Data, had been starting to get developed, but the entire rest of the cast had barely been touched. And one of the things he wanted to do right out of the gate was start developing the cast, and the first thing he did right out of the gate was to jump on Geordi, and that's why you had the enemy and the defector, um, or the enemy right off the bat, and, and uh, the Leah booby trap right off the bat, third season. He was go. He was started right in about developing the characters as family, as a unit and individuals. And even though it was a nightmare, and they went through what was in the bone pile before, before they started taking, you know. And then Michael famously is the one that said, "Why are we ignoring the fan base out there?" And he is the one that said, "We'll come up with a release form if that's what it takes, but we're gonna let's hear some of the fan writers." And they started. Um, Listening, you know, taking the spec scripts, which was just unheard of, because they knew that if they, if if somebody sent a script and then a year later they bought an idea that was similar, then the kid sitting in Iowa would go, "You ripped off my story," and take them to arbitration, and that's what the purpose. Of, and eventually, that's what it brought it down. But ten, you know, ten years later, whatever, that's what finally happened after and after Michael had passed or was was out of the show running spot. But you know, Michael did that, and he brought in all these young buck writers eventually, Ron and Renee and and Renee. Uh, Ron Moore and Brandon Braga and Renee Echevarria and and uh, Noreen Shankar and Joe Minoski and and then even Brian Fuller and and um, Ken Biller and even on the on the tail end of that Mike Sussman and some of the guys on the Voyager Enterprise years but um, that that overlapped 
but you know, I mean, his you know, he had so he had several gifts, and and we should talk about the the seasons here. I don't want to hijack the whole show, but Michael was just a pretty simple guy that um, just wanted to do a good job and really cared a lot about Star Trek, especially after he got into it, and was not afraid to fight Gene or fight Rick or fight his young buck riders or whatever. If he you know, whether whatever his stature was or where he was in the pecking order, he would um, he would go to bat for things he believed in. And yet he did um, try really hard, it seems, to fit inside that Roddenberry box, right? I mean, he was kind of known for working within the, the, the limitations which were presented to him and figuring out a way to make that formula work dramatically. I mean, would that be, would you, would you say that that's an accurate uh, statement or? Well, yeah, of course there would be, you know, Gene, when he came, he knew Gene. And Gene was still going well, but within a year or two, Gene's health was going downhill. But, you know, third season, they were still arguing about whether they could mention Spock by name, you know, and Sarek. Um, and fighting over, like, Eric will tell you his original idea for uh, yesterday's Enterprise was about Sarek going back to the guard. It was a Guardian of Forever show. And, and you know, the whole thing that became Sela replacing herself um, to fix history was, was about Sarek and, and changing history with the Guardian. But... Um, but him, you know, I say he was a Trek fan. He appreciated, it, but he wasn't a hard. He wasn't a Ron Moore, Trek fan. He wasn't like yeah. all the young kids coming up later. I mean, the original generation, Ira was probably the oldest fan fan boy of the of the writing core there that had a professional resume. The rest of them were just getting started off as, as the boys, as Jerry used to call them. So, um, but he knew that something made Star Trek. You know, he was smart enough to go. Let's tap the fan potential out there. And sure, ninety nine percent will be Drek. But hey, look, we got Ron Moore's script in, and he and he had to find a way to get it through. He had to leave it with somebody to leave it with somebody to get it to to us to see, and we snapped it up and used it in a heartbeat. And they're not all going to be that. One out of a hundred will do that, maybe. Uh, you know, and Renee Echevarria wound up being another one like that. But um, but he he you know give him credit for opening the door. And they wound up taking a lot of pitches. They may not have been usable scripts, but they took script ideas and and then crafted it themselves. And sometimes if it's if it was good enough, some people's, you know, name and money stayed with it and sometimes it got taken off, but they got something. They they got paid something for it. So um so that's that, yeah. Yeah, and you know, I mean, hey, we got Ron Moore out of the deal, so that's not too bad. Ron Moore know? and a whole and like that whole string of guys I mentioned, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Who are now I mean, show running shows and doing everything. You know. I mean, you know, basically that that list that you rattle off is like the the people who are running TV now, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. It's kind of crazy. I mean, Narain yeah. was a friend of Ron's, who, who and that's what Narendra Four, Narendra Three is named mm-hmm. after, but uh, he was the science advisor, but he wanted to write, and instead of going to Voyager at DS Nine when Next Gen ended, he. Uh, went off on his own, then wound up running CSI in its yeah. glory. Not the first couple of years, but like the glory six, seven, eight middle years of CSI. Yeah, it's not too bad. Which brought science to a mainstream audience. So yeah, so, you know, and then all of them, all of them. So um, he's, he's got a great legacy. And we, you know, we barely talk about shows, but um, that's the stuff between the cracks that is the reason why. Then you see the, sh- the final yeah. product and you see his, you know, he has a hand in everything where there's, like any of the showrunners, they all have a hand in every script, whether their name is formally in the credit or not, because they may do an uncredited rewrite and give a new writer or give somebody else more of the split on the money, you know, by not mm-hmm. putting a name in the slot. So, but that's just their job. If you're a showrunner, that is your job to be the final polish or make sure it's done by somebody on staff. 
you're the fun, you know the buck stops with you yeah yeah it's your yeah. your show essentially right so yeah all right well okay so next gen by season four it 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 it, it, it gets its shit together. <laughs> yeah. um, it explodes. Becomes, yeah, it becomes what we all know and love. Love, And uh, after season five, approximately, you know, simultaneously, but whatever, he uh, leaves the show to develop Deep Space Nine. So... Um, he steps yeah. back, we'll say. He, he steps back. Okay. <laughs> he steps back that's to a, develop Deep Space term. Nine. And... I mean, I know that that Berman was, you know, co-creator on that, but, you know, it does definitely feel like Pillar probably did the heavy lifting in terms of the writing um, in that in that uh, equation. Um, well, they can sit, they'd sit around and have just like they did with Voyager with Jerry involved too. They would sit around and conceptualize and have a lot of lunch meetings and you know yellow pad meetings and bash stuff out and bash stuff out. And, and then yeah, when it came time to put words on paper, it was that was his job. Yeah. 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 So, okay, well, I mean, let's talk about DS9 uh, and, and w- what the decisions were um, that were made in order to, you know, sort of make this thing different from next gen or, or decide that that's what was needed, you know? So, okay, so, so when was it that the uh, network or whoever it was, I mean, I, don't, I know there wasn't a network, but the studio, whatever it was, said, okay, we want a new Star Trek show. Well, it was when the fourth season and the fifth season took off, and uh, and they wanted to overlap, and they saw a good thing, and uh, it's it's that old that's that old Star Trek conundrum of whenever you have a new series, or even if you have a movie versus the movie before it, it's like okay, we want exactly the same thing, only different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like, what do you do? And and I'm sure you know we've all. We've a lot of us have been through the the whole pendulum swing of okay, well DS9 is going to be the darker, grittier side, which is what they said at the time. You know, the next gen became the happy, bright uh, family in space. We need to introduce conflict. How do you do that without interrupting the inner human perfection of the perfect humans of Gene's 24th century? Well, we'll have the other species, whether they're allies or they're adversaries, and we'll put them at the you know the Casablanca or the or the um, the Dodge City or the, you know, Fort, whatever of, of of the galaxy here at this crossing point, and then we opened up the wormhole as an entry point to that even more. So they threw all these ideas, and it was and it was it was kind of the outpost on space, and they thought about having it be ground based or on a, you know it's like can either be a space station, a ship, or be on a planet, and they thought the planet sets would be too expensive, and they just didn't want to do their ship shows, so bang, space station was it. And I don't think they thought in the beginning that 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 thing they hung around DS9's neck, if it's the show that doesn't go anywhere, uh, they didn't think that was going to hit them until people started to say that. And then they, you know, they had the runabouts and they, but it was a thing they had to, they felt their way along. And thank goodness they had a situation where they were allowed to do that. They were a golden, they were a golden calf, you know, golden child, and they were allowed to find their way through even through one season. And then they could look back and go, okay, well, it did seem we spent, we went over budget on the pilot, which was an amazing pilot, and then we took it out on all the other shows. We're all kind of cramped and bodily, and let's bodily, bottle showy, and so let's open up the second season with this big, you know, three-part Bajoran story, and let's get over that. And then by that time, um, he was into, um, um, they were into already thinking about Voyager and UPN 
although the UPN network angle came late. They were going to do another syndicated show to replace Next Gen. Jerry was talking about this on my new on my um, Trekland on speaker CD that we had at Vegas, and it's all about Caretaker, the pilot for Voyager. And I was remembering how she said we went at it just thinking it was going to be the syndicated show to replace Next Gen, so we had two shows running. And then at the last second, UPN kind of became a thing and said, oh, well, let's do a Star Trek, and you can be our flagship, and yada, yada, and it'll be a big deal. And all of a sudden, Star Trek had a network show again. But, um, and, you know, and so he backed off to go do that. And then when Voyager got going, he backed off. And somewhere in the mix, I just know because it affected our life, because it's how my wife got to work on Voyager for five years. But when Voyager was launched, he wanted to do, after all those years of Trek, he wanted to do something different under his deal, his writing deal, development deal, and he developed Legend for UPN with... Um, oh, Richard Dean Anderson. Yeah, Richard Dean Anderson and John DeLancey, and, uh, which was a great show. It, it was cut off before its time, about the, about the writer who wrote The Tall Tales of the West in the 18, like, 80s and 90s. But he, he wrote about what all he did, but he didn't really do it. And John DeLancey was kind of the wacky inventor that – it was kind of like a wild, wild west a little bit, only instead yeah. of it being agents, it was uh, a writer who was making tall tales out of you know writing much bigger than what real life was. And they would, they would have a mystery or a crime or something, to, or an adventure to deal with every week. Uh, and it only went you know like 13 shows and got canceled early by UPN. Surprise, surprise. But it, it, if they had shown it the courtesy that they showed Star Trek um, – it could, they never marketed it right. They would never show John Delancey any of the pro- – I always remember, I remember this. They never showed Delancey. I'm like, the Trek audience, it followed Voyager, and they would never show Delancey in any of the promos. It's like they would never show Jerry Ryan in the promos for Body of Proof. And I'm like, you're, is this somebody's <laughs> ego somewhere or contractual, or are you just stupid about your potential audience? You know, like use everything. And then he came back to Voyager and um, – uh, and, and kind of jumped back in after things had kind of gone with him being hands-off. And then he you know, he was there through the end of the second season and then totally got out to be a, a note-writing creative consultant and went over to develop movies and, and, and took Eric with him and, and what became turned into Dead Zone and then Wildfire on ABC Family before, before the cancer came back to him. It, there, so there, cra- there's the whole end of it there, kind of in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy, like, uh, with the whole Legend thing, like, that show debuted three months after Voyager debuted, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, they came one right after the other. I mean, that's pretty impressive, you know, for one person to, to, to create two shows in three months or whatever in terms of air date. That's crazy. But... Um, it okay, kind of well, shows you that Jerry was probably, since there were three of them co-creating Voyager, it was like Jerry yeah. kind of taking the lion's share of the fresh, <laughs> the fresh blood, on that one. But yeah, but you say that that's um, yeah. Janet came in as a temp when they were doing the pilot for Legend. She was temping while they were still casting Voyager in the whole uh, Janeway casting crisis. And will the will the first officer and Doctor be a be a male if it's a female captain, or will they be a female if it's a male captain thing she was she was there with a the front row seat with the casting office out her back window so yeah so they were but that that reminds me that legend was like right on the heels of, of voyager um but again i i and i remember he had a very yeah he had a party at his house to you know kick off voyager and everybody loved it but i just i always thought he got done dirty <laughs> by the up by the crazy little upn crazy execs who kept turning over two years until you know, Les Moonves basically grabbed it and then shut it down. 
Um, yeah. yeah, UPN was a very troubled network. I remember that much. They they didn't seem to get anything, anything going. Really. Troubled I mean, is a very dignified word, adjective. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't give uh, that show uh, Pigsty the the chance it deserved either, right? Yeah. What's up with that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yes, that's that's a crazy a crazy network, but to say the least, you know. But, um, yeah, okay, so so Voyager, I mean, yeah, Deep Space Nine, it seems to make sense that, you know, kind of the same the same pattern would occur that, that occurred with, with the creation of Deep Space Nine yeah. when it came to Voyager, that he would step back from... And, and from I think Deep him Space talking Nine. Ira back to DS9 wasn't just, oh, come help me get the show off the air. I think he, from the beginning, went, and when I back off in a couple of years, you're going to be the showrunner. I mean, I think yeah. that, whether he told Ira that up front or not, and maybe he did, but I know that was in his mind. You know, just and just I mean, for him to have the foresight to say, like, you know, I'm, I, I know what's going to work, and I know that you, you know, even when I leave, this guy is going to make like you know one of the best television shows of all time. I mean, that's pretty impressive. How, how, how do you do that? <laughs> I, I, I mean. <laughs> It's it's, it's it's amazing it's, how you just look for ways to work in Battlestar Galactica references. I, I'm honestly well, in that awe was Deep Space it. Nine. That was a Deep Space Nine reference, right? Okay, there. I'm but, sorry, you know. my my mistake, my mistake. I I just that's immediately where my brain goes. No, he did that when he bought the the script for Ron okay. Moore. He knew that yes. one day this kid would go on to make the best uh-huh. television show. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's pretty it's pretty amazing. Um, so, okay, so he left, and we're going to talk about all of his shows, you know, in the coming weeks. But then he came back for Insurrection. Now, I mean, I guess this is kind of an interesting thing. I mean, it's sort of like a prelude to this, because this has always been something which has kind of bothered me. And, like, I know that he wasn't there for, like, the day-to-day operations uh, at the end of Next Gen, but it seems strange to me that, like, he wouldn't have written the finale. I mean, it seems strange that Jerry Taylor didn't write the finale. I mean, how did, you know, Ron Moore and Brandon Braga end up with that gig? And I mean, I guess I'm not really so interested in that as I am, you know, like, how did Michael Piller end up not saying, I'm going to do this myself? Well, let's look at the calendar. We're talking about uh, 93, 94 in the winter and the spring. Michael has been, if he's not, they're into the second year of DS9, so he's trying to get that, but they're already talking about Voyager. He's, he's hit deep in getting Voyager off the ground. So, but he does, so he's not going to take the lion's share of of, um, of the finale and the wrap-up of TNG, but he did jump in the last couple of shows and the finale. In fact, I dug this out because I always remember this. There's a very famous, and I've read it a couple times at conventions, and, and in, when I get Portal 47 going, uh, my new fan experience deep dive thing, uh, we're going to, this is one of the things, the typical, the kind of thing we'll, we'll talk about. But basically, he jumped back in on the finale of Next Gen. There was a whole scene, instead of just asking Riker for the future D, they had a really cute scene where basically the entire senior staff in the future goes to the D in a, you know, in a ship museum. With a, with a tour guide, with a token tour guide. And this is not Michael's, this is Ron and Brandon. And wrote a really cute scene where they're basically taking a tour incognito. And Picard, old Picard is like, you know, Beverly's talking about my grandfather. And, and they're all there like this Scooby-Doo, you know, uh, Muttley crew 
kind of thing. And the and the tour guides, and this was the throne. This was the seat of honor for Captain Jean Luc Picard. And yeah, and over here the vaunted, you know, and she's doing a bridge tour, and they go to engineering, and she's telling them not to touch the consoles and all this stuff. And meanwhile, they're all going. They're 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 having fun, but but Data and Jordy are like, oh look, there's some there are some shards of dilithium still in the. Warp core, okay. Well, you know, and the regenerator, okay. And they go to, and then at the end of it, and Worf is on the tour too. And at the end of it, you know, like they, they, uh, they pull a phaser on her and stick her in a closet, basically. But uh, it was a really cute scene. And there's a memo that he's when he saw it, and it was late in the game because they were running it, they were writing it insanely crazy late. And um, and he basically said, guys, it's it's wonderful, but it's too cute. It's too cute. And he wrote this memo called the April in Paris moment memo, where basically he said, you guys, young young Ron, young Brandon, on this amazing show, this thing, your career has just exploded. Look what's happened to you in the last two, three, four, you know, Ron, you were, uh, you were waiting tables and sleeping on somebody's sofa. You know, Brandon, you were an intern, and here two, three years later, you're writing the first modern Star Trek movie, and you're writing the finale for this hit show that got nominated for a drama series Emmy finally. And he's saying, you know, you need to think about the crew in the same terms as what's happening to you. And, and saying, you know, some, it's a little bit like what Ira got back to when he went on his uh, There'll Never Be a Time Like, you know, what we left behind back at DS9 when they did their finale. But talking about, um, uh, you know, the most important moment of our lives, this moment, and we missed it. Before we even realize that that moment has passed us, with each of us even barely paying attention to it. Um, and as we learn the lessons of this episode, he's talking about all good things. We come to understand that you can never have that moment again. You can revisit it. You can remember it. You can laugh about it. You can hold reunions. You can go to conventions. You can show reruns forever, but you can never live that moment again. If man is to evolve to the next level, he must learn to explore the moment, which gets into a lot of the Q stuff. But he was he was double doing that to them. And I just I, I just remember when I was interviewing, he said, I wrote a, I wrote a memo to uh, Ron and Brand. I'll get you a copy of that memo when I was doing the companion and uh, you know here's these young bucks like all of them were doing and they especially who were all still very humble but their their careers were just exploding here for them and making choices and um, here's slightly sadder but wiser slightly older mentor um, Mike Piller you know kinda of saying okay guys I know it's hard to do but just take a moment and try to savor this while you're being hounded for movie revision pages at the same time you're writing the whole finale in a month under under duress and, uh, and and think of that. So maybe not have it be quite as sugar cakey, but maybe have that more permeate the finale. And that's what wound up happening. You know, yeah. then you have, you wind up with Picard coming into the poker game at the end, and uh, and then going, well, that was an interesting future we just saw, which was all written intentionally to be nothing at all like what you saw starting to happen in generations. Right? I mean, the D crash. So of course they're not going to be on the ship is not going to be in a museum twenty years from now or ten years from now. It's going to be crashed, but. In fact, they intentionally tweaked all that stuff in all good things, you know, like warp thirteen and three nacelles and yada yada. But um, but uh, that's what he kind of came back and infused. So no, not a heavy-handed comeback at the end, but he kind of came back and said, "Let's let's get the you you young guys are brilliant, but let's kind of reset this focus and this point of view and this frame." And and meanwhile, I'll get back to trying to get Voyager cranked out in time, much less Legend. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, so he was understandably busy, you know, and, and um, it sounds like TV was really his 
passion, at least at that point in time, or maybe just something that he saw as being, you know, an avenue for. Yeah. Well, those are the yeah those are the roads that were open in front. But you know, the whole time he was he he no he had he had you know he's a writer. He had three or four or five movie scripts in a drawer somewhere in his back pocket. You know that he could pull out and go and finish developing, or somebody put some money into them, and he could you know take off and go with it. And and he he of course he wanted to do that and, and diversify and. You know, I mean, do I, I guess I was just thinking more along the lines of, you know, the way that things are going or whatever. Okay, Deep Space Nine is going now, and then it's like, okay, there's going to be a movie, oh, and a there's going to be a new, a new series, yeah. right? And well, he, he did get, at, you know, the Generations famously was, they were hedging bets, Rick and Paramount, and they actually had Maury Hurley talk about coming back, mm-hmm, and then yeah. Mike and, I mean, uh, Rick and Brandon, uh, Ron and Brandon doing a doing a story treatment a story treatment and they picked Ron and Brannon's to to run with which was probably what they intended to do all along but they just had Maury as a fallback. Yeah. And 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 Michael said later on that they ask that Rick asked him but he felt a little insulted to be to have to audition like an actor, mm. you know. Yeah. So he's yeah. like, you know, as politely as he could was kind of like no thanks. Like that's okay. Yeah. Like if you want to come to me and have me write it that's one thing but I I don't think I need to audition. So, you know, and then First Contact was the guys were hot and they wanted to fix, you know, they wanted another shot at doing a great script, and they did. Even from separate shows, they came back and worked together just great. So when First Contact was over and Ron and Brandon are kind of like, well, we don't want to do three Star Trek movies, you know, and, and where are they now, 98? Um, you know, DS9, they're thinking on down the line on their career, and that's when Rick comes back to Michael and goes, okay. You know, here's your chance. I'm sorry. I want you to do the next one. Um, I want you to do the next one, and and you've had some time away, maybe some fresh thoughts, maybe some distance, and uh, and so that's how they approached it. And Michael kind of looked at it as like, you know, I've got some things going here, and uh, and you know, Legend's gone. We're working on Dead Zone, kind of um, that that famous movie or two that I can't remember the titles of, the spy movie, especially. And he's like, okay, I think the time is right now to tackle this. And here's what I want to do. And the whole, you know, um, Heart of Darkness theme and a couple of the other darker things. I mean, First Contact was dark. I say dark, yeah, but he also wanted to get make sure that it, you know, movies by themselves, people complain about the next-gen movies, unlike the original series, which did the opposite. The series was like lead second banana or co-leads driven with the with the little five below and they found they kept finding more ways for the original series cast to have more equal next gen was the opposite they had the family and then it be, they all became picard and data you know action movies for billing purpose almost and structure and one of the things michael brought to insurrection out of the gate was he says i want to get i want the movie format to be the family again i want every which drove a lot of what they did now is that book is is his book Fade to Black? Is it online now? I mean, I've had a copy since since he wrote it and didn't publish it, and I did it, used it for the companion, and it's, um, it's mean, been back I've, and forth. I've I've read it. I don't know if I was supposed to, but <laughs> it's, well, I know I know it, Sandra wanted to get it out. It is okay. I thought it was pretty yeah. much out there. Like, who cares now? I never could figure out yeah. who would, who would care. So yeah. you can read the whole bloody back and forth, you know. Um, I, j- I always felt badly for Michael because his first instinct, he wanted to use Romulans with his story and mm-hmm. the, and the uh, Patrick and Rick or whatever, maybe I'm, maybe I'm casting a wide net there, but some powers that be thought that Romulans were boring, in air quotes, 
mm-hmm. which I, you know, by the Michael was around long enough to see um, Nemesis start off with Romulans, and then even he didn't live to see it. But then JJ started off with a renegade Romulan. <laughs> so if he could have done his original take as as the as the book lays out, a lot of the machinations of writing what became Insurrection, you know, the movie didn't have a name settled on until late in the process. Um, a lot of that wouldn't, you know, if he'd been allowed just to sit down and write his thing without by then having the committee of powers that be and people with, say, you know, nitpick it to pieces um, at every turn, it might have been a whole different critter. And I always felt badly about that. And and the last time I did a formal interview with him for the movie edition of Companion, uh, we got to, talk, you know, in 02 or something, we got to talk and he did one of those. Mm-hmm. I said, "Well, how interesting it was that you wanted to do Romulans and they were boring, but here the next two, you know, the next movie started off with Romulans." And he did one of those. How about that, huh? You know, looks at. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it, it is it is a, a a great book, and I think, yeah, like you're saying, the thing that it shows more than anything is sort of how the the creative process works on a movie of this scale you know and especially a franchise movie sure and by that i mean like they have like you know budget breakdowns and stuff and it's crazy and awesome i mean it's just it's it's very eye-opening to see and and really sort of you know makes you think about like what the story is behind the credits that you're seeing and maybe not placing blame on on people mm-hmm. just because they happen to be you know up there on on the screen you know their names happen to be up there on the screen he uh he didn't direct it and he didn't you know have he didn't have say and sway over all the people he had to make i mean it, i think of all that i'm i don't want to be too generalized here but of all the next gen movies it may have been the most political political it's not me. in not in factions around the world but as in uh the people that had a hand in the too many cooks in the kitchen sure i mean yeah you had had patrick stewart as a producer and everything like that and it's like yeah it it, 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 you can totally tell you can totally tell yeah which is you know which is like that's what happened you go to a movie franchise and people what do you how do you negotiate you know somebody's agent they, you have to put more perks in so this time we're going to make you we're going to give you a better image approval on photography <laughs> we're going to give you the right to do notes on you know I mean it, those are like little perks that go into contracts because it's the fourth movie now and the third movie and you should have more than you had on the first movie and or else your life is not moving forward you know kind of just mm-hmm. goofy stuff that in hindsight you kind of go yeah but at the time that's part of the climbing the ladder and that's part of the you know that's part of the scene yeah. so yeah. Uh, yeah and and the attitude of the time of Paramount was like slap slap a script not slap a script and slap a director on it but it's like it's a Star Trek movie how do you mess that up you know mm-hmm. which if it didn't get answered then we sure had the answer with uh, Nemesis but uh, uh, yes yes I mean, but I just but, but on a personal level I just always felt badly for Michael that his big comeback to Trek wound up becoming this octopus kind of of a creature of a creative creature you know it it sucks, but at the same time, I mean, the fact that that book is out there as sort of like the final exclamation point on his legacy, I think is kind of awesome, you know? That's part, I don't think he knew that when he sat down to write it, but I think after it all happened, I think that's why he was really into, and the fact that one one producer at, Star, at, at Paramount held it up, 
Yeah. Not because of anything that was said, but it was just a blanket thing of we shouldn't show the world how we this is this is pre internet. Yeah, yeah. This is pre twenty four seven media <laughs> blogtastic world that we live in, you know, Potterama. But uh it was kinda like uh we shouldn't show the world how, how these like meetings what's said in these meetings and the kind of decisions we make. It was all about like showing too much process. It wasn't even like about any specific and then, and then for years and years and years, nobody would, well, somebody didn't want to publish it. It wasn't anybody for, it wasn't for cause at all. And after a few years, all those, you know, after the big Paramount turnover and after the big Viacom divorce, none of those people were, nobody involved was involved anymore. And it was like, why isn't it? And Sandra, uh, Michael's widow, has been wanting to get it out. I mean, she, I think she'd rather have it out legitimately and, you know, have it out for sale. If it's yeah. going to be out there as a PDF that people download yeah. or whatever, I, so be it. But yeah, but whatever happened, Michael wanted that to be his, his, you know, not so much as don't blame me, <laughs> but it's no. like, can you believe what I had to deal with? Here's the true story of what really happened. And not as an excuse, but just to show, you know, here's my, if you liked my original ideas or you didn't like them, fine, but here's what it was, you know. I mean, it's, it's the thing that, I mean, we're all sort of chasing, you know? I mean, I know, this, I think it, I would say it's probably the thing that you, you've been chasing throughout, like, all the stuff that you've done, which is, like, trying to pull back the curtain and show how this stuff is made, right? Yeah, and, how, how and preserve get, it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, how we get the art that, that, that we're, we're watching, and I think that that's pretty awesome, you know? And context it's, in between facts. Yeah. Not, yeah. A, not a day goes by that I don't see somebody or hear somebody talking and they're, oh, yeah, well, some, blah, blah. I go, no, it was this, this, this. And not that the world's mm-hmm. going to stop spinning over it, but, um, but yeah. It, it just, yeah. It just it, it yeah. helps you appreciate everything more, you know? And not just Insurrection, but everything, like all movies, you know? I mean, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty awesome. It's a pretty awesome book. I, and I someday, really some smart aleck is going to go, well, that was... I mean, you do have to remember, when you read that, that was like 1997, 98. So yeah. it's, it's the way they were doing you know, Paramount and Tentpole and Trek movies in 1997, 98. So a lot of things have changed, but then you know, the, the thing that's never different is when there's pressure to either, either follow up a sequel or in a franchise series or whatever. I mean, you look at any series and everybody enjoys one you know whether it's james bond or it's fast and furious or whatever the hell it is you know the different ones there's pendulum swings and different things happen on different ones and it's not like it's a plan so you know what happens and and to that end uh fade to black you know is is great for showing you what can happen and the kinds of things that that uh, that can happen um, not, not to mention, you know, it's a snapshot of the time. I mean, someone else can write yeah. a book about, uh, you know, mm-hmm. some tent pole today, you know. But, I mean, the 90s, I mean, that's like my favorite era for movies. So to have a snapshot of how, like, a 90s blockbuster was made, it's great. You know? Yeah. Well, cool. it's like reading Steve Poe's book, you know, the, the classic making a Star Trek from the 60s. I mean, a lot of the stuff is still the same. It's just the budgets got bigger. <laughs> you know, only and then they they output off their printer instead of typed it on on a carbon copy Mimeo or something. But other than that, it's you know it's the the emotions and the stresses and the budgets and the layers of bureaucracy and all that stuff doesn't change. Yep. Yeah. Well, well, thank thank you very much for, yeah, for talking to you. us about. Michael Piller. What what else have you got going on these days? Now that con season has has ended. Oh well, thanks guys. I I hope I mean, we didn't talk a ton about individual seasons and shows, but I I 
hope the broad strokes there. Yeah, I mean, everyone. I mean, hey, every, everyone has a copy of your book, right? They can they can <laughs> fill in the gaps. Yeah. <laughs> For next gen, and then you know, in DS9 and Voyager, also, there's so many good. You know, there's a lot of good writing and a lot of good uh, uh, podcast guests and all that. But yeah, hopefully that kind of can. I I find myself more and more connecting dots. So yeah. you know, not so much the int details, but the dots. So. Um, yeah. So yeah, so one of the things, the big new thing, I, we just brought out a new, um, I think I mentioned it, the new Trekland on Speaker CD this year is for the 20th anniversary of Caretaker. So it's got Jerry and uh, the late great Rick Colby and um, Richard James, who was a production designer for Voyager, and um, uh, uh, Dan Curry, visual effects. So all their 94, 95 interviews with me, big chunks again. Um, and that's at LarryNimichuk.com where... Trekland blog is and um, everything else and like everybody else we're all looking forward to the big 5-0 next year and crazy Vegas being five days long and the Geek Nation tours the LA to Vegas Trek um, tour with that Terrace does that he has me lead um, we've already got uh, 16 people on that already <laughs> to max oh, out wow. at 35 and which will be next year and we're adding the San Fran leg so you know, come to my site, and that stuff's all there. But the big, 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 huge new thing, uh, Trekland Trunk, I'll mention that real quick, and Enterprise in Space, the space nonprofit I'm involved with to put student experiments into orbit in five years. That's all exciting stuff. And the new, new thing that the summer cons brought out was my new deep dive fan experience called um, Portal 47, which I know is not for everybody. But if you enjoyed making deep dives like this and hearing from new voices that you won't hear at conventions and maybe even on some podcasts um, and seeing some more stuff out of my archives, uh, I just invite everybody to do that. It's, it's, it's just a small – I say small. It would be nice to have 50 to 100 people, but um, it's not about masses and masses of people. So it's just finally something I've been trying to do to get my memories and archives and my Rolodex of Trek people out to – out, out in an all new way. So it's like a 24th century backstage pass to a 21st century way to get back to the 24th century, like a mini con all year long. So even for people that are isolated out in the middle of nowhere that never get to go to a convention, it'll hopefully feel like we'll bring some voices, my voice and some other voices and some of the things out of my archives to people. And all I'm saying right now is there is a Facebook page up, but for right now, it's kind of person to person setting up. So just email me, Larry, at LarryNimichek.com, Larry um, which is my basic email, and uh, just mention Portal 47, and I'll send you the info right now. Probably be another month or so before we get, but we're launching in September, and I've been signing people up one-to-one, and um, it's, it's pretty exciting. It's something I've been trying to figure out how to do for four, five, six years, and... Uh, on top of everything else, <laughs> Star cartography and Star Trek continues and crazy things interrupting my path. And uh, but you're talking about a legacy. That's like one of the things I've really. I, I opened up a box today and I was I found I was looking for that pillar memo, and I found I found a thing where Bob Gillen on DS9 emailed Janet when they were first when they were still on Voyager, like midway on Voyager, and. And they were trying to get something to somebody's printer that would work in the office. And it was like Jerry Ryan's IMDb with her two credits when they were just had hired her. And they were trying to figure out what she'd been on already to get – I was like, oh, okay. It's like, can you print this out? And it had like it had like dark skies and some like one guest shot on something from May 30th, 1997. But I've got like junk like that put back in 
files here and, 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 and way more cooler stuff than that. But um, yeah, I, I just, that's kind of like what I need to, aside from all the other cool stuff that's going on right now, I don't want to be just a dusty guy from the past, but um, you know, he said watching, wondering what, what the uh, Star Trek Beyond is going to bring for good and bad. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I just realized I, I have a, I have a calling to get that stuff out and get it aired out and get it preserved and share that with everybody. So, um, so that's what I'm focusing on now, apart from everything else, <laughs> apart from everything else I'm already doing. So, Excellent. Um, yeah. Yeah. But thanks for asking. Yeah. As always. No, 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 no. Yeah, thank, thanks for taking the time to talk to us and everything. I mean, people people love it when you come on our show. They do. And they it's do. like if there's one person who we were going to talk to you about, it had to be Michael Piller, right? I mean, yeah. he's like the guy. So Michael so, was, yeah. was always very honest, and uh, he would be busy. But when we did sit down to talk, um, he was he – was, when I was a first-timer out from Oklahoma to work on the book, I mean – Nobody could talk to me when I first came out, like in '92. But they all called me back, Jerry and Michael and Rick and Brannon of the of the younger writers was the only one who called me back, which was plenty that I had to do in three months, <laughs> the first edition, and uh, and then was very gracious after that, um, both when I was a visitor and then when we were around, you know, when Janet worked right there and and we were, you know, in the in the Star Trek family there with the website and command and communicator magazine and everything and was always very blunt and honest and uh, like I said that last interview um, even more so and he was not a flashy guy he didn't like taking you know I said well the guy who saved Star Trek and he's like I wouldn't say that I just I just tried to do you know I just tried to do this and I just tried to do that and just tried to do that so he was a really down to earth guy and and he says he wasn't a partier he wasn't a Hollywood party guy he just liked to go home to his family and he was very big on writers having real life, not just watching TV and retreading what they saw on TV into their writing because they had such empty little lives because they sat at a desk all day. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Or yeah. if they were young, to hurry up and make up for some, you know, It's okay to be a young writer, but you just make sure you're having some life along the way. And yeah. um, Anyway, anyway. Thank you. Sure thing. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Okay, guys, thanks. Well, that that was that was a lot of fun talking to to Larry today. I mean, he's yeah. always he's always a good guest to have, and I mean, it really was kind of like okay, so he's he's the next gen guy, yeah. and Michael Pillar is the next gen guy. So it's like we have to talk to Larry about Michael Pillar. I mean, that's just like the the natural thing, right? Yeah, and it's it's so much fun. Uh, you can tell it's always fun talking to Larry because he has such a passion for it, and it's just you can just sit back and he has so much knowledge in there, and it's so much fun to have him share it. Yeah, and it sounds like like Michael Pillar was really like a great guy in general. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's not every every time I, you hear anyone talk to him and uh, talk about him, it's always like with you know the utmost respect. You know? I mean. Yeah. Like Iris Stephen Bear, you know, is always, you know, sort of like bending over backwards to give him credit for what he he brought to to Star Trek and and Deep Space Nine in particular and everything like that. And it's you know, it's one of those things. And I think it it really kind of the fact that that everyone you know, like feels the need to do that really mm -hmm. kind of I think speaks to to the type of person that he was. It's it's kind of cool, you know. Yeah, it is. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Well. Michael Pillar isn't the only thing we've been talking about this week on Trek FM. Uh, so here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. 
previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. Well, it's very small and intimate, and you get to see, you know, a lot of people whose work you've come to admire or whatever, and, I mean, that's what's kind of cool about it. The, the fact that it's in a hotel, it's at the Rio, <laughs> and, you know, everyone is staying there. Earl Grey. Yeah, really, she's following the Hasbrat, I think, is really what it is. <laughs> Come for the revolution, stay for the Hasbrat. It's got to be fresh Hasbrat. None of that replicated stuff. Like, Daniel's, like, at the watching the end of this episode, like, tears are coming down the face. It's like, oh, it's the Hasbrat. It's so spicy. It's what it is. <laughs> the Orb. Also, the original title of this episode was A Matter of Breeding, which, when we talk about things feeling TNG-ish, that could have been a Riker episode. the ready room it's about people and feelings and emotions it's about philosophy it's about the future it's about hope it's about glory it's about intellectual promise that's what axnar is about it is not a story about pew 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 i promise you that to the journey i do have one honorable mention name it prox Oh, <laughs> how could we not have a top five season five moments without Prax? Warp five. It kind of like is akin to um, when fans saw the galaxy class in the next generation for the very first time. And you had a, basically a crew and civilian compliment of what, over a thousand people. About two thirds of that compliment were civilians and their families. So you d- actually did have teachers and scholars and scientists and their extended families on board. Commentary, Trek stars. One of the things that amazes me about the score for Star Trek The Motion Picture is that he he only had 50% of the movie available to him when he scored. So he, he was scoring an awful lot to scene missing, scene missing. The 602 Club. Where did he get the cloak from on the other planet? I really, really, really want to know. He shows up uh, with the he, cloak. He, he, he kind of fashioned it out of out of a rudimentary lathe. Uh. <laughs> Literary treks. It's a small point, but I thought it was really interesting to have here in the book because, again, that's what Star Trek Deep Space Nine has really always done for Star Trek, which is kind of make faith okay in the Star Trek universe and show how it's valid. And so I thought that was a really nice... Uh, and it, again, it's a it's a tiny point in the book, but I thought it was pretty powerful, at least for me, who is somebody who is a faith. So. Mm-hmm. Axanar, the official podcast. It is the spirit of TOS that matters that's being captured, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic. The aesthetic was 1966 to 1969 that had its moment, it had its time, and there's a certain amount of charm still to that. But it doesn't allow you to push the Women narrative at forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back, in my opinion. Keiko could totally beat the crap out of Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> this is so, like, I cannot buy this at all. That she's just sitting there being like, oh, my baby. At the very least, she could throw a plant at him or something. <laughs> because we established in TNG that pot foo is a thing. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. And beyond. Like, like... 
those new Star Trek Beyond uniforms. You oh, see yeah. those things? Yeah, I, mm. I did see those. They're pretty, they're pretty. The production quality is pretty solid. A lot of I, green. I like, a lot of I like green. The, I like the jacket. I like the jacket. Yeah. And uh, and the new uniform. Did you see like 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 Zach Zachary Quinto like totally like, not, you know? Yeah. Just throws out the new uniform and no one notices because you know he's all stealth about it. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know how much I like the new uniform uniforms. I like the underarm like gusset thingies, and I like the I like the um, the kind of squared off shoulders. Yeah, but I don't like the fact that the little pattern is gone, and I don't I, know how much I like the collar. I don't I, know. I, you know what? I I am glad. To me, it's it's a, a sign that uh, they're willing to put their own stamp. It's almost like a like Rathacon feel where it's like, we're going to put our own visual stamp on this and, and this it's going to work. This is true. Yeah. Sonia Milkovic Hayes is the, is the uh, costume designer. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I don't know. But either. she's done a million and one movies, including like all of the fast and furious movies and stuff like that. So she's, he she's sure brought over uh, a whole lot of people with him. Which yeah, I think you know, is I, we've talked about it. It's wonderful because he can communicate with them so easily. I think that's great. Yeah, it's his team. She is also, by the way, the costume designer on Star Trek Insurrection. No kidding. Yes. No. Ki- well, the uniforms were pretty solid in that, as were the mm. other costumes. Mm-hmm. So that there was nothing visually wrong with Insurrection. No. No. Aside from that set where they didn't put in the special effects. <laughs> well, okay, I didn't say it was perfect. Yeah, so, yeah. So, you know. Well, what can you do? So, so, yeah, you'll find our shows uh, wherever you get your, your Star Trek podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Another way that you can help keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, You'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Yeah, you know, right now, as we speak, all of the patrons are having the patron roundtable discussion. Yes. Where they're 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 talking about uh um S- Star Trek community like yeah. how, how you I don't know. I don't know what they're talking about. Go listen to the thing. You can listen to the thing and yeah. see all the fun that they're having and you know, we and would be there. In. We would be there but we're here. Sorry. Hey, we're br- you know what? We are bringing you more to talk about at the next roundtable. There you go. There yeah. you go. That's good. All right. If you want to contact us, uh, one way that you can you can do so is by leaving us a review on iTunes. Um, that helps us out a lot, apparently, like we were saying before. Uh, I, I guess I was not aware how much 
it helps us out, but it helps us out a lot. Yep. And we'll read it on the air, you know? Um, In a character but... voice of your choosing. <laughs> Go ahead and let us know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, we, 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 would, we would definitely appreciate iTunes reviews, because by doing that, we get moved up in the in the iTunes rankings, and then more people can find us easier, and then listen to us, and then they can leave reviews, and then we get pushed up even higher, and then yeah. they leave reviews. Yeah. You, you, you get the idea. Uh, but there's other ways that you can contact us, too, like if you want to get more specific or whatever. Uh, you can fill out the form uh, on trek.fm slash contact, or you can leave us a voicemail if you look on the sidebar of the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. Or you can find the network on Twitter at trek.fm or the network on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And you can also find the Babel Conference on Facebook if you just type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trek.fm and click the discussion tab on the menu bar. You can also get it, get there that way, and that's where um, all of the listeners discuss Star Trek and Trek FM and all sorts of fun stuff. Yeah, Babel Conference is a lot of fun. It really is. Yeah. I mean, it's and, and also a good place for Star Trek news because if anybody sees anything related to Star Trek, <laughs> yeah. it gets posted in the Babel Conference instantaneously. It does. So that comes in handy, for sure. Where can people find you, John? Well, you can find me crawling around on Twitter at Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. Uh, you can find me on my own little uh, corner of the net at kesseljunkie.com. And you can also find me on a uh, weekly podcast known as Words with Nerds, which is also available through iTunes and Stitcher and a couple other avenues. And uh, would love to uh, have you lend your ears over there as well. Yeah, and your reviews. Yes, yeah. well, I'll settle for ears at this point. That'd okay. be great. All right, that's yeah. cool. <laughs> Where can they yes. find you, Mike? Uh, well, you can find me uh, right here on Trek FM doing Standard Orbit with Drew. Um, this week we, we talked to uh, John Tenuto about mm. uh, the making of Star Trek VI. Yes. If you want to know what the best part of the Vegas convention was, just listen to uh, this week's uh, Standard Orbit, and that's the audio version of the best part of, uh, of, of the Vegas convention for all practical purposes. Uh, so yeah, uh, definitely check that out. And you can also find me on uh, CommentaryTrackStars.com where I do Commentary Trackstars Off Topic and Commentary Trackstar Babies. And by the way, I'm going to give a plug to this because I don't think anyone is going to listen slash watch this, but I'm like 20 episodes behind on, on Commentary Trackstar Babies where we do audio commentaries for TV shows. Yeah. So on Labor Day... Yes. I'm going to be doing a 15-hour podcasting <laughs> marathon streaming live on, on Google Play slash, I guess, YouTube. So if you want to see what's involved with, uh, with the, the, the behind the scenes of that, and uh, yeah, definitely check that out. There will be more details. I As will say that at the very least, tune in for hours 14 and 15, because that's going to get trippy. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. And, you know, if you happen to be free at any point on Labor Day, John, and there's a TV show that you want to talk about, let me know. 
you know, because I'll be around. I I will participate. You excellent. have you have thrown the gauntlet down. This will happen. Excellent, excellent. I appreciate it. So yeah, there's that. And then you can also find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, and you can find us on Twitter at ComTrackStars, or you can email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com if you want to contact us directly, directly, super directly. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary, Trek stars, and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read <laughs> but never thought you'd have the time for because you keep on messing up your copy. Uh, but, John, what, what book do you have? Well, the delightful, <laughs> the delightful choice for uh, this week is the uh, audio adaptation of Star Trek Insurrection, uh, written by J.M. Dillard, uh, obviously adapted from the script, and narrated by Boyd Gaines. And the description goes thus. The battle for paradise has begun. Starfleet has discovered a secret that could transform the future of the entire Federation, a secret that presents Picard and his crew with an agonizing moral dilemma. Faced with orders he cannot obey and a crisis he cannot ignore, Picard finds himself torn between his conscience and his uniform. Did you see this movie in the theater? I did. You remember seeing it? I do. Yeah. Yes. What was it? Was it like opening night or what? Yes, I saw opening night. I did. I saw it opening night in the movie theater. I, if I recall correctly, it was a 12.01 a.m. showing. Actually, Wow. They did not yeah. do that in Chicago back then. They, uh, yeah. Um, well, I, uh, I was uh, hanging out in a college town back then, so oh, midnight okay. showings were, were quite the thing. Saw a lot of midnight showings, and this was one of them. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I did not. I see, and this shows my waning interest in, in Star Trek in the late 90s is like, I actually waited until the next day to see it. I didn't see it until Saturday. I went to 600 North Michigan after my space exploration class. And everyone in my space exploration class was like, you guys going to see Star Trek? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I remember going and thinking, yeah, it was okay. I I remember the distinct uh, reaction of just about everybody in my row because it was a whole bunch of us that went at the end of it as the credits are rolling. Just one after another, we all just looked up and we just went, huh, okay. Yeah. And that was, yeah. that was about... Although I will, I will say that seeing it in the movie theater, there was that one shot of them rowing across the water with the mountain in the background, mm-hmm. and that has always stuck with me. That was one of the most gorgeous shots I had seen on screen up to that point. I, and I still maintain it's a beautiful shot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a good-looking movie, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's cool. But yeah, I mean, if you want to sort of get an idea of uh, why it may not have um, blown you away, definitely check out Michael Piller's book because uh, it's a fascinating read. It's a fascinating read. All right. Well, you can get Insurrection for free on Audible uh, since you're a Trek FM listener. Um, As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with the 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com. And we thank Audible for supporting Commentary, Trek Stars, and the network. All right. So that takes care of Michael Piller's work on Star Trek. Uh, very, very vast 
Um, I mean, he's he's definitely up there as one of the absolute most important creators in oh, Star yeah. Trek history, and possibly in the uh, like recent television history, considering how many careers he launched, yeah, or helped launch, <laughs> I should say. That's that's definitely true. Yeah, yeah. And we'll be back next week to take a look at uh, his first non-Star Trek show, Legend. <laughs>